Hello, friends and family, and welcome to the Word for the World podcast, where we preach truth to heal the soul. Today, we're going to go into the book of Malachi, and this is going to be part two in our series, the book of Malachi. And this one is Corrupting the Offering. Now, we talked about in the last time that Malachi was a prophet that lived about a hundred years after the Israelites returned from the exile. And in this time, the temple is already rebuilt and they are fully living in in the promised land and living in the, the city and all of these things. And they were supposed to have been a very great time and a wonderful uh era that this was happening because they were miserable in exile but it really didn't take very long for the people to fall into a situation of uh, corruption and it was really a bad time because the temple was not being taken care of the people were doing whatever they wanted to do And really, they weren't just disregarding God and forgetting God. They were mocking him and uh, uh, really just not doing the things that they were supposed to be doing. And we're in a bad or spiritual relationship with God at the time. They were in a place of rebellion. But uh, today, we're going to go into what this offering is. Is and what the state of these people were at this time. We're going to focus mainly on one type of offering, um, and that is the whole offering or the burnt offering. And uh, if you look into it, you find that the whole offering or burnt offering is called the Olah, which means the ascent offering. So this is really something that is supposed to be ascending to God. And we're going to get into all of that. But first, I'd like to just take our text for tonight. Um, if we look in Malachi chapter 1, We're going to start at verse 6, and we're going to read through verse 14. And then this is the second argument that God has with uh, the Israelites in this book. It says, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you? O priests that despise my name, and ye ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon my altar, and ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say that the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? 
Offer it now to your governor, and see if he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. And now I pray you, beseech God that he will bring and be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your person, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle the fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it, in that ye say that the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Ye said also, Behold what a weariness it is, and ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick, thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept these of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth it, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. So here you see God has quite a few things to be upset with them about. Number one, they're uh, not honoring him. They're not giving him his honor as father and worship. They do not respect him. They do not revere him as the master of their life. And they despise his name. The priests despise his name. And this is bad enough when, you know, the, the regular people are uh, not following the Lord. But really in Israel, when, when things get bad is when the, the religious leaders, they despise God. And really start to turn the people away from God because they are supposed to represent God in, in many ways to the people. So there, the priests despise his name, and he says that they offer polluted sacrifices. The blind, and the lame, and the sick, and then later he says the torn, and the torn is uh, translated as being uh, destroyed by violence, or basically they take whatever was killed in the field, and they bring it as a sacrifice. And if you don't know and uh, you haven't read the Bible and this is all new to you, then you might be asking yourself, why is this such a big deal? Why are these offerings and sacrifices so important to God? Well, it really all goes back to God's plan for the redemption of mankind. 
And we start in the Garden of Eden when the fall happened and we were thrown out of Eden. And it says a cherubim with a flaming sword was set up at the east gate. And we were not allowed to enter into the garden anymore lest we take of the tree of life and live forever. So this is some way that God is blocking us from having a relationship with him because God is uh, holy and God is righteous and God is a, a supreme being that cannot exist in congruence with sin. He cannot dwell with sin because sin is rebellion against him and he will not dwell with that. Now, we know that in the gardens, things took place, and really it was the pride of man that said we would be wise. That was what Eve said, this is good for food and it makes you wise and be as gods. So this was the folly of man was they did no longer want to listen to God and rely on him for what was right and what was wrong. But they wanted to judge it for themselves and to be as God. So they come away from the true relationship that God had made for them in the beginning, and they are cast out, and they are cast out of his presence. Because if you... I know I said out of the east gate... But the Garden of Eden itself is not a physical location. It's not a place you can find on any map. And it's, it's not because it's like Shangri-La or anything like that, because it didn't exist as a place. It was more a realm. And God kicked mankind out of that realm for their disobedience. So... If we go back in time and we look through what's happening, we come to uh, Genesis chapter 22. And really, this is uh, one of the main times that the burnt offering is mentioned in the Bible and specifically given to God. And what's really interesting about this is it is many years before the law is given. But it is what God told Abraham to do. And it's a beautiful story, and I heard someone talk about it today, and they just missed the whole point of the story. And, and it's not somebody I was talking to or uh, having a conversation with. Uh, I just saw it on, on the TV and I thought, you missed it. You don't understand what's really happening here because you're trying to find some moral reasoning behind all of this. And there is no real moral reasoning here. And when you look at this thing, Abraham was promised a son. And Abraham messed up and he got a new son and uh, had a son by his wife's handmaiden. 
And that wasn't really what, uh, good because they were starting to have trouble. Uh, she was angry with Sarah and making fun of her and really just, you know, wasn't a good thing. And one day Abraham goes complaining to God again. And God says, hey, I told you, you were going to have a son. And I meant it. You're going to have a son. And Abraham falls on his face and he says, says, oh, that Ishmael would live before thee. And God says, that's not the son I promised. I have another son that I promised you. And he will be the one that follows the line. Now, we talked about this a little bit in the last one, so I'm not going to go real deep into it. We talked about Isaac and Jacob and how the time was... uh, or the the blessing was actually the promise that God gave Abraham. He was renewing that promise with each generation. So when you come into this chapter 22 in Genesis, you see a few very uh, specific things happen. One is that God comes and tells Abraham to take his only son, that he loves. So at this time he had gotten rid of Ish, uh, yeah, Ishmael. Said you go and separate out from us because you and your mom are causing trouble. And God really only points to Isaac as being his son. He says your only son, Isaac. He's trying to make sure that he knows. Don't go, you know, pick up your other son, this other boy, and try to do this with him. Because I'm watching. It's Isaac that I'm after. And he says he takes this son that he loves, and he tells him to go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that he'll tell him about. So Abraham takes him. And he goes with the wood and all these things. And we know the story from from, uh, Sunday school that Isaac was laid upon the altar. And just as Abraham was coming down with the knife, an angel stops him and says, Okay, don't, don't hurt your son. And it's really... A confusing picture if you're if you're looking at this in some kind of moral context because um, it is the the God of righteousness asking Abraham to sacrifice the son that he was promised and there's a verse in Genesis 22 that says you to the people who went with him he says you stay here in the camp. The boy and I will go up and worship God and we will return. So he is confident in the Lord that, number one, this is the child that I was promised. He is the the child of the covenant that God gave me. And if I sacrifice him, God will raise him up again. That is at least in his mind. So he gets there, and this happens. And what is really interesting is that you find out that the land of Moriah and this mountain that he sacrifices 
or was going to sacrifice Isaac on is the same place that Jesus is later crucified. Exact same place. And what's interesting about this story is that God is saying that I will provide a lamb for the sacrifice that is the ultimate sacrifice that is to be made for sin. And what he was showing Abraham was the intent that he had for his people. was not that he was going to kill his people, but that he was not going to hold anything back from his people. That he was going to give his only son as that Lamb of God, as that sacrifice that would be for our sins. So in the story, they find the ram in the thicket and they sacrifice it. And God explains to him what this picture is all about. So this is to be a burnt offering, an ascent offering. So we want to understand what this ascent offering is. Well, I'm going to give you a list of scriptures that you can go and read for yourself because if I read them, I'll be here for, you know, an hour just reading scripture, which is fine, but that's not really what I'm here to do tonight. So if you look at Leviticus chapter one, you find the laws for the burnt offerings and Leviticus chapter two. You find the laws for the grain offerings. And Leviticus chapter 3 is the peace offering. And chapter 4 is the sin offering. Five, uh, actually, it's chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 13 is the sin offering. And then uh, 5, 14 through 6, chap- chapter 6, verse 7, a lot of numbers, is the guilt offering. And then we go into 6, 8 through 7, 38 is, or actually through the end of seven, chapter 7, is the priests and the offerings, what they're supposed to do with the offerings, what their role is. And then um, chapter 8 is the consecration of Aaron and his sons. And chapter 9 is God accepting Aaron's sacrifice. So if you, if you read those chapters, you'll start to get a little more understanding about what these things are. And I'm going to pull out some of the main points for us to look at uh, in this. So if I go to Leviticus chapter 1, we're going to take and we're going to look at what this burnt offering is. And says, the main point here from chapter 1, 3 through 9, the main points here are uh, if the offering is a burnt sacrifice or a whole offering, he must offer a male without blemish and he will offer it of his own voluntary will. And he brings it to the door of the tabernacle of the, uh, the congregation. So he brings it to the temple or the tabernacle and he's not obligated to give this offering. It is by his own voluntary will that he is to give this. 
And it says he shall put his hand upon its head. And really the the translation of the word there, lay his hand on the, the head or put his hand there, it means to you're leaning into this animal. You're really transferring your weight and, and your intention into this animal. So the animal is taking significance from you. Uh, and then he shall kill it before the Lord. And so a lot of people thought that um, you, or I thought, especially when I was younger, that you would bring your animals to the priests and they would do all the work and sacrifice it for you and you were good. No, actually God uh, expects you to do the work. And it's kind of a, an interesting thing because if you look at the, the, uh, the Catholic model, And some some other religious models, uh, you go to the priest, and the priest goes to this and this and this. He says, "Okay, your part is you have to say this many times this thing, you know, Hail Mary, all that stuff." And really, this is not a picture of that. This is a picture of you bringing your offering to God and giving it to Him yourself and doing the work yourself. Now, the priests have a job too. So in this, what they do is the priests bring and they take the blood and they sprinkle it around upon the altar. And then uh, then you take and you flay, says, and he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into its pizzas. And then you take and you wash the inwards or the innards you know, the intestines and the, all the, well, what we call awful. It's not the, it's not the same word, but it tastes the same. And his legs, you take the inwards and his legs and you wash them with water. And then the priest shall burn them on the altar. Uh, and then, so the priest sprinkles it and then lays it on the altar. You are not putting it up there on the altar because the priests have to do that in a certain way. But everything else is in your hands. You're killing the animal. You're bringing the animal. You're laying your intent. You're, you're transferring your uh, intent into the animal. And you're washing and getting it prepared so that the priests can do their job. Now, when you offer it, it says uh, in the last verse, it says an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. So it's interesting that this is an ascent offering because when you, when you read the rest of this, you find out that nobody eats any part of this offering. There are some uh, offerings that are given and a portion of it goes to the priests and that's how they have food. But this offering isn't one of those things. This offering, the whole offering, is basically you put the whole animal on the fire and you leave it there until it's gone. It's the ascent. Because 
What's it saying is that it will make a sweet savor unto the Lord. It is, you know, it's a, a smoke when they burn the fat and, and the meat and everything. The smoke goes up and it smells really good. I mean, if you've ever barbecued a brisket, it smells really good. And I'm not talking, you know, some of them crazy barbecues where you got to put all this sugar and stuff. I'm talking salt pepper barbecue <laughs> salt pepper smoke when it was good so and uh, if you if you're outside smoking a lot of brisket before long all your neighbors will start showing up because it's it's an inviting smell and see what that is is it's it's because it's an inviting thing to God and let's look at what an offering and a sacrifice is symbolically so if we go to psalms 51 in chapter or 51 in verse 17 i'm sorry the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart O god thou wilt not despise so here we see what this offering truly is it is a sacrifice of a broken spirit. You're giving your heart and everything to God because you have transferred your intention, everything, when you lay your hands upon the animal's head. You're giving it the, sim the, the symbolic uh, passing of your heart into the animal. Now, this is symbolic. It's, you're not actually... You know, this isn't metaphysics or anything like that. And then you symbolically offer your entire heart to the Lord. And the smoke rises up and it is taken by God and he accepts it because it is done the right way. Now, it is a male out of the herd that is without blemish. So no spots. No scars, no uh, no being dead beforehand because you have to physically kill it at the altar. You can't offer God a dead heart because a dead heart won't won't <laughs> doesn't want God anyway. So if we look at that. And we go back to what's happening in the time of Malachi. They're bringing blind animals and sick and lame and, and animals that are torn by violence, injured. What does this say? It isn't just that the animals are wrong. It's the heart that's not right. It's the heart that isn't uh, giving God completely his due, what his honor, his respect. And they despise him and they say he's contemptible and they're wearied of it. They get tired of him and they snuff at him. That was, I've, I love that word. They snuffed at it. It means they kind of snorted and oh, it, they look down upon this. But what this is, is God's way of showing them how he wants them to 
present themselves to him and how that he can have a relationship with his people. So if we take a look at the tabernacle and real quick, you go in from the east towards the west and you go in through the the outer doors or the curtain and you go into the, the main courtyard and there would set a altar for the burnt offering. And then that's where you would give your animals and everything and the priests would do their thing and they would go into the next tent, which is there's only one more tent, but there's two rooms in this tent. And they would go into this room, is called the holy place, and there was a candlestick uh, with seven lamps, which is a menorah, a big one. And then there was the table that was had that had the showbread. And then there was this small little table that was the table of incense. Now, the showbread was to show the people that God is there to provide in the holy place. And the seven lamps were really a representation of the seven attributes of God. You have, you know, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, all these different things that God will provide, God my healer, the, the Lord our salvation, all these things are, are in this holy place. And this little table of incense that the priests would burn, and it said that the smoke of this incense would go up before God, and it was as the prayers of the people. It represented the people's prayers in this holy place. And then you have the Holy of Holies, this highest holy room in, in the whole tabernacle, in the temple. They had one there too. And this is a very special room because inside this room is the Ark of the Covenant. And only the high priest, which is there's only one high priest at a time, there are many priests, but there was only one high priest. And only he was allowed to go into this room on one specific day a year called the Day of Atonement and to sprinkle blood upon this Ark of the Covenant because the Ark was a symbol of the table of propitiation. And in a lot of Bibles it says mercy seat. Uh I don't like that term because some people want to think of it as a throne. It's not a throne. It's It was never a throne. Um, it is a place where God gives his mercy out. And so, and this place was very special because this is actually where the spirit, it's called the Shekinah glory of God, lived there in that room. And it was very important that the high priest had everything just right, his heart right before God and everything, because if he went into that room and was not right with the Lord, he would die. Because remember, 
At this time, God cannot exist openly with sin. So when you come into a relationship with God, you're walking in through the east gate. You're walking toward that relationship that was in the garden. You are coming up to that cherubim with the flaming sword. And what's really interesting is when you come to the curtain of the Holy of Holies, there's cherubims guarding the way on those curtains. And then when you come to the Ark of the Covenant, where this table of propitiation is, there is two cherubims with their wings stretched over, and they are guarding the presence of the Lord. They are guarding that relationship that we cannot have in this time. So, or they couldn't have at this time, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. But, <clears throat> so you come into the court and you offer your heart to God. And now for it to be accepted, it has to be your whole heart. And it cannot be taken one way or, or a little bit given, a little bit there. It has to be all of it. Because it, ta- it says that the sacrifices of God are a contrite spirit or, or a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That God will not despise. In other words, he will never reject that type of person. So when you come for with the, the whole offering, it is completely up to you. You are not required but you, if you come, you must come with this intent and this thought that you are giving your entire offering to God. And you are not taking any part for yourself and not giving any to the priests. And we'll get into the priests part here in a minute. Then the priests do their job and they take it in and they light the uh, incense and your prayers go up before the Lord. Now this, at this time, this was as far as the people could go. They couldn't even go into the holy place. They could only come into the outer court and offer their sacrifices. Because the other parts was for the priests, and the Holy of Holies was only for the high priest one day a year. Now, we're going to look at this next part. We're going to go into Leviticus chapter 6. We're going to take a look at uh, what the priests had to do during this time of the full offering, the ascent offering. Okay, so it is the burnt offering... And I'm just going to go through some, some points here. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, the burnt offering, um, because it's burning upon the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. So it's saying that you're going to leave it up there until it's gone. It says, and take up the ashes of the fire. Take up the ashes that the fire hath consumed the burnt offering on the altar and and they put them beside the altar. So it wasn't just, okay, they're, they're going to make a sacrifice, so let's start a fire. 
know, this was something that they they had planned out and people had specific jobs. They had things that they had to do. And when he was going to, when the priest was going to do his duties as uh, tending the fire and doing the, the sacrifices and stuff, he had to put on his white linen robe and his white linen uh, breeches. You know, he had to put on his nice clothes. But when it come time for the ashes to be carried off, they would take those clothes off and put on their regular everyday clothes. And they would take the ashes out and put them in a clean place. So, the other part to this was the fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. This was something that they had to do. The priests had to keep that fire going. And they had to take the ashes and pull, put them out of the camp into a clean place. Now, there's a lot of responsibility here on the priests because they were supposed to be holy and have this holy garment on, this white linen. And if you want to know what kind of clothing it was, you can go uh, look in, uh, I think I think Exodus is where they first start talking about what the clothing looks like and it's very specific and well for me it's just a really dry kind of read and I know that sounds terrible but uh, (laughs) it is (laughs) I can't I can't deny it but the priest's job I think is very interesting is because just like preachers today our job is to keep the fire burning to always keep it where the people can come and see and receive from God. The other thing that I find interesting is that we are to take the offering that they give and help them give it to God. Show them how to give it to God. And then when it's burnt up and whatever's left, the ashes... We take the ashes away while the, and so the fire doesn't stop burning. And then when it's done, we take the ashes out of the camp and we throw them away. And what's really hit my heart is that these are the leftovers and these are the things, you know, ashes hinder fire from burning. These are the things that don't get burnt up, that don't get consumed, and don't go up. These are our leftovers. These are our problems. These are our things that we we can't deal with without God's help. And it's the job of the ministry to not take those ashes and put them in a bag and say, here, this is yours, take it home with you. No, we remove the ashes from their fire and allow the fire to continue its work 
And then we take the ashes and we put it outside the camp. We don't take them and find their home and and bury them there and, and constantly remind them of what their ashes are. This is this is one of the problems we have today in the churches around the world is that they want to hold on to people that have given their heart to God but have an issue somewhere and they want to hold on to that and say, well, you haven't given everything. And you can't burn ashes because they're ashes. They aren't consumed anymore. Because if you take those ashes and you put them on the fire, it'll start to put the fire out. No, you take the remnants and you put them away. Because what God is saying is, you have given me your heart, your whole sacrifice has ascended unto me, and I accept that, and that other stuff, it don't matter. So put it out of the camp. Now, I'm not talking about murdering and prostitution and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about (laughs) Christian people who are trying to do their best but have an issue here and there. And you know what? If you were a prostitute, that doesn't disqualify you from the grace and the love of God. And it shouldn't disqualify you from a church. Because there was a woman that Jesus spoke to that had that same problem. And they were going to kill her, but he said, yeah, well, if you're going to kill her, then whichever one of you is perfect, you throw the first stone. Whichever one of you haven't committed this sin, you throw it at her. And they all one by one dropped their stones and walked away. And what did Jesus say? Now I'm going to throw a stone at you because I am the one without sin. He said, where are thy accusers? He says, I don't accuse you either, but go and sin no more. So when you offer your heart to God and it's complete, that's the the end of it. You don't have to carry around any more baggage. And I'm taking more time than I was expecting to take. But if we look at the state that Israel gets into, you see that in Samuel, 1 Samuel, you see the, uh, the story of Eli and his sons. And his sons were the... the... Uh, quintessential do what I say because of who I am type of people. They were crooked. Anyone, you know, that has that big head near power, they start to act this way. And they start to throw their weight around and says that uh, the Lord actually talked to Eli and said, well, you've got to deal with this situation. And by the law, Eli would have had to stone them to death. But Eli didn't want to do that because he recognized in himself the same kind of issues. That he was not willing to give this up. 
and they were crooked and they were taking meat from the burnt offering and taking the choice cuts and they were sleeping with the women that were worshiping there. And I, I think that it it's the way it's translated or the way it should be translated in, is that they were raping these women and using their power as a way to do what they wanted to with them and saying, if you don't do this, uh, we'll do it by force. I know that's what they said uh, to the food. So this is the this is this kind of situation that we find ourselves in Eli's day. This was before Solomon or Saul, before the first king. Samuel was a boy, and you see that this attitude is cyclical in the Israeli people, or not the Israeli people, but. The, the nation of Israel. That they do what God says and then things are good and they fall away and then they do what God says, things are good and then they fall away and the judgment and all this stuff happens over and over again. That's why they were in exile in the first place. So when it comes to Malachi, God is saying, I, I've had it. You're rebellious and I've loved you and you've not given, you've not honored me. You've not even recognized that I love you. And you will not do what I say. And he says, the Gentiles, my name is going to be great among the Gentiles. And it is. Because see, there's a funny thing about these books of prophecy. And I think especially here in Malachi is that it reaches back to the very beginning of time when God created heaven and earth and it shadows forth all the way to the end when our relationship is restored. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> you see that this offering is so important and they are not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not giving their heart completely. They're not doing what a third of what Abraham did. Because Abraham gave his heart, his boy, his promised boy. And he would not withhold that from God. So what was interesting is, now that we understand what this offering is, we can look and see where God did it himself. We don't have to go very far, just about 2,000 years ago, on a hill, on that same hill in Israel, where Isaac was supposed to be given up as a whole offering to God, a burnt offering, an ascent to God, that Jesus was sacrificed as God's whole offering, his whole ascent offering for the sins of this world to be blotted out by the blood of the Lamb of God. You see, this is why the offerings were so important, because it was pointing to 
the ultimate sacrifice. And if you were not doing the sacrifices and the offerings the way God intended you to do, you were not going to see when the Lamb of God showed up. You were not going to recognize him. And that was what was wrong with the Pharisees. They had not done the things that God wanted them to do for many, many years. And it had been 400 years or better that there were no prophets. That God was silent after Malachi until Jesus came. Or until John the Baptist came. Which is in this, around the same time as Jesus, because he's only six months older than Jesus. But you're looking at this, and you see that God has laid forth not just a type, but a blueprint of salvation for his people. And if you are not willing to follow the blueprint, you're not going to end up with the same finished product. If somebody gives you a blueprint for a house and you start, okay, build it. So, oh, well, we don't need that here. Let's add this here instead. Let's take that away. Let's take this away. And you don't know what you're doing. You'll build a house that looks completely different and it'll probably fall apart because you didn't put the right load-bearing wall in the right place. That's the thing. That's what. That's the whole deal with salvation. That's the whole deal with offerings and sacrifices. God was showing from before the law something that would end the law. That would fulfill it. So here, what's really interesting is remember how I talked about the temple and it goes east to west and there's this one place that nobody's allowed to get to because it's the Holy of Holies and only the priest is allowed to go in there one day of year for the, the Day of Atonement and to push the sins of the people forward. Well, guess what? There was something happened when Jesus died. When he gave up the ghost, there was an earthquake and the building shook and that veil to the Holy of Holies where the cherubims were standing guarding the presence of God was rent in two from top to bottom. And it was God saying, okay, I don't live just here anymore. I can dwell in my people. Because sin is no longer a factor. Because you have the blood of Jesus. And if you accept what Jesus did for you on that cross, and you accept what he did when he rose from the dead. Then your sin is no more. It is taken outside of the camp and put away. And the funny thing about being in the desert, and if you've ever been in a desert, and you throw a bunch of ashes out there and the wind blows a little bit, it won't be no long before you don't know what's sand and what's ash. It's the sea of forgetfulness. God is taking your sins, 
When you give your heart to the Lord, he takes away all of those things that would hinder the fire of his spirit to consume you, his Holy Spirit to dwell in you. He takes those things and he doesn't tell you about them all the time. No, he takes them outside the camp and puts them away. The biggest problem in this time of Malachi was the priests were telling the people, oh, this is good enough, that's fine. Just take this little bit here. Okay, whatever, it's tiresome. Just, you know, is it dead already? Yeah, okay, fine, whatever, bring it up. Next, next one, okay, burn the thing, whatever. Well, I got to get the fire started. They weren't keeping the fires going. They weren't concerned with the people's condition. And they were taking from the sacrifice for themselves and not paying attention and keeping the temple up because the temple was in disrepair. It was falling apart. We have a similar situation today where men come and they want to misuse people as they're giving their sacrifice to God. They want to keep their ashes and tell them to carry them around with them and look at them every day to remind them of how terrible they are. And we look and we see people consuming people's whole sacrifice. And I think about people with talents and abilities and things that they want to give to God, but they're preachers that say, well, God doesn't want that. You need to do it this way. You need to do it the way I say. What is that preacher doing? He is robbing God of that person's sacrifice. You are robbing them. And if you are one of these people that are stuck in that kind of situation, get out. Because God wants all of you. He wants the whole thing. That's why it's called the whole sacrifice, the whole offering, the whole burnt offering, the ascent. It's what is required. And you know what happened to the sons of Eli because of the things they were doing? And, it, and because Eli wouldn't stop it, they died the same day. All three of them. Eli was sitting on a fence and fell over backwards and broke his neck because he was watching as the glory of God was departing because of what he didn't take care of and what he allowed his sons to do in the temple and to the people. This was terrible. Well, it wasn't the temple. They didn't have the temple built yet. But the, the tabernacle where they were doing the worshiping and the sacrificing, he, he let them get away with that. But God will not let these kind of men prosper forever. He will come and he will judge and he will deal with these kinds of people. And you will not have to live 
under their tyranny forever. All you need to worry about is your sacrifice is a broken spirit. Is your heart contrite? Are you coming to God honestly and saying, I'm messed up and I want you? Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me. If that is the truth of how you feel, there is nothing that can stand in the way of you and your salvation and you and your Holy Ghost experience and you and your eternal rest with him. Because Jesus, he paid it all. He was that perfect sacrifice. He was God's whole offering for us. God bless you all.